Happy Father's Day uh, to those of you uh, men here uh, and uh, to those who have stepped into the role of father, uh, maybe for a kid who's not uh, your blood family, but your dad uh, to them. And so happy Father's Day to all of you. I know this also can be a hard day for some uh, who maybe have lost their dad, and so this is uh, tough. It's one of those kind of bittersweet days where uh, mostly happy, maybe a little sad. But we want to wish you uh, happy Father's Day today, and I want to speak specifically to the men for a little bit. Uh, guys, there's a special event coming up on July 10th, that's a Saturday, from 9 a.m. to noon called A Call to Purity. Bracelet here like that. Um, it is designed to give you the weapons that you need to fight back against the, the continual onslaught of the fruit of the sexual revolution. And so, guys, if you want to sign up for that, you can do that in the lobby today. You can go to chapelrock.org slash events and do that. Brent, are you, there he is right there. Brent Miller is here. If you guys have questions, he'd be glad to chat with you about that after the service. Uh, he's got information for you. So we just want to encourage you. Um, a vital, vital thing, super important. Uh, please be aware of that. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, being our father. And thank you that no matter how good or or imperfect our uh, earthly fathers may have been, you are ultimately good and ultimately perfect. And so we thank you for that, God. And, and for those who uh, maybe today is difficult, I just pray that they could lean in um, to who you are as their father. Um, thank you, God, that because you are perfectly loving and perfectly righteous, um, that your justice is also perfect and that in places where you have to exercise a little fatherly discipline, um, that you do that right, and that, that uh, we can trust you in those moments. Thank you. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, as we turn our minds to your word today, that you'd speak to us, that we'd have open minds and soft hearts uh, to Jesus, what you want to say to your church today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Back in 2019, at the um, annual meeting of Amazon's stockholder, uh, you know, shareholders thing, um, <laughs> there's something interesting that kind of happened. There was part of the Q&A, and this is on YouTube, you can actually watch this, part of the Q&A session, and a lady raised her hand, and Jeff Bezos, the chairman, CEO, multi-billionaire of Amazon, richest guy in the world, it kind of trades off back and forth. He, he very frequently is the richest man in the world. Calls on this woman. And she says, and I quote, uh, I have an, a return and I was wondering if you could help me with that. It's a true story. <laughs> it's on video. And so uh, he says, uh, yeah, sure, we'll help you with that right after the meeting. Hang around a little bit. We'll have someone come and help and we'll get that return taken care of. And she goes, thank you very much. And then he apologized. He said, my apologies that you had to use this unusual setting to accomplish what should have been a much simpler task. Uh, we're going to look into the root cause of what, you know, why this happened, but uh, anybody else have anything they need to return? <laughs> you know? I, I love that. I, that's, that's how you use power. That's how you use influence to do good in the world. And regardless of what you think about Amazon, I am certain that in that moment, our Father in Heaven looked down and he smiled on that. Here's a guy who's using his power, he's using his influence to do good. I also know that God had a very different response when the nation of Babylon 
his chosen servant to bring judgment on the nation of Israel because they had abandoned their covenant with him when Babylon abused their power and usurped God's place, he sang a song of judgment over them. We're gonna talk about that today. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 47, verse one. Thank you for being here again. Happy Father's Day. For those of you here in the room, appreciate you doing that and those watching online as well. Um, Just a reminder, uh, today is the due date for the baby bottles. You see what I did there? Okay, um, today's when those are due. So if you remembered them, great. If you've already turned it in, thank you. Uh, if you um, forgot, that's okay. Uh, we were joking in the office. We know it'll be another two months before they all come in. So um, you can bring those back in anytime. Uh, after today, you'll need to take them to the office, but there's a little table out there for you to put those on. Okay, also, this coming Wednesday night uh, is our, uh, we're doing an online-only Zoom uh, wired class. Historically, we've done that on site, and that's really our preference. It's an easier way to get to know people, but we, we want the bar to entry to be pretty low for that. And so um, we're doing an online only. Again, it was the same website we showed you on the screen earlier, chapelrock.org slash events. You can go there, and you can sign up to be part of that. It's a bit of an experiment. We're kind of trying it. So it's two successive Wednesday nights. So this Wednesday and next Wednesday um, is part of that. So maybe the Sunday morning thing just hasn't worked for you. Cool, here's another opportunity, okay? Um, For the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series on the servant songs, this rhapsody of redemption that dominates Isaiah 40 through uh, chapter 55. Today's song is a song of judgment. We're going to see how one of God's servants failed him and the judgment that the Lord Almighty announces on them and what we can learn from him. Now, before we do that, all right, in a culture where practically the worst sin you can commit is to be judgy, I think we need to establish God's right to do this, or at least reinforce it. Last week we told the story about how Charles Spurgeon was converted from a verse in Isaiah 45. He preached a sermon on this passage, and it was a little bit tempting to just preach his sermon today because it's really good. The sermon was called The Portion of the Ungodly, and portion by their, he means share or inheritance. But in that sermon, he says this, it is a truth beyond dispute that God's justice is not partial, that the description of the destruction which he awards to one class of sinners is a most fair picture of what he will do with others. For God hath not two or three ways of dealing with men in his justice. He went on to write this. He hath not, remember this is 1850, okay? He hath not diverse weights and diverse measures. For these things are an abomination unto the Lord. He lays righteousness to the line and judgment to the plummet. And he awardeth vengeance on impenitent men by an established and invariable rule. He's saying God has the right to judge. And when he does that, he is perfect and impartial. I want you to listen as God uses that right. Look with me at Isaiah 47 verse 1. Now, you need to understand, all through chapter 46, God had been critiquing the, the, the false gods of Babylon. Bel and Nebo, he, he's, he's saying they're, they're useless. They have no power. And then he turns his focus on the people in chapter 47. Look at this. Go down, sit in the dust, an image of humility. Virgin daughter Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. <laughs> he's, you've been a queen. Now you're gonna be a manual laborer. 
right? Take off your veil. Only wealthy women wore veils. They're going to be in poverty. Lift up your skirts, bare your legs, and wade through the streams. See, here's the thing. It's like, what in the world is going on there? Rich women didn't have to cross the streams. Bridges, as we know them, were virtually unknown in the ancient world. You crossed a river at a ford, right, where the ground is a little bit higher, the water's shallow, you, go, you get across the river there. Bridges as we know them, they, did, they didn't have them much. There were a few, but there weren't many. So to cross the stream, you had to get wet, unless you were rich. Then you sat in a chair that people carried on poles. How many of you have seen Aladdin? Right? Remember? that He's on the pole. He's in the chair, and they're carrying... That's this. He's saying... You're going to get wet crossing the stream. You didn't used to, but now you will. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. Now, the my people there is Israel and desecrated my inheritance. Inheritance is often a word used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. I gave them into your hand, your there is Babylon, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I am forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of those will overtake you in a moment, on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you when you say to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Disaster will come upon you, and you will not know how to conjure it away. Did you notice the magical terminology here? A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom, a catastrophe you cannot foresee. It will suddenly come upon you. Now he's mocking them. Keep on then with your magic spells and your many sorceries, which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll work this time. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward, those stargazers who make predictions month by month. Let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they're like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. These are not coals for warmth. This is not a fire to sit by. This is all they are to you. These you have dealt with and labored with since childhood. All of them go on in their error. There is not one that can save you. Here's what I think Isaiah is telling Israel and us today. If you want to avoid being the object of God's judgment, you have to have a nature like his. And only he can give that to you in Jesus Christ. Isaiah wants his readers to know that in the hands of God, even these wicked nations of the world are tools to exact judgment on those who've earned it. 
God used Babylon to judge a disobedient Israel, and when Babylon went too far with that, he used the Persians to judge Babylon. And in the same way, God can sing a song of judgment over our nation and our own individual lives. And so to that end, we need to reject the pride and callousness that dominated the Babylonian experience and choose to submit our lives to Jesus, to receive his nature and become like him. So what did Babylon do that was so bad? What did they do to invite God's judgment? I think this text lays out two chief sins that the Babylonians committed that that brought God's judgment on them. And those are real things that they really did, but they also serve as parables for us this morning about how we should live our lives and sins that we should avoid. What did they do? Here's the first thing. They abused their power. They abused their power. At the time of Isaiah's writing, 700-ish B.C., Babylon was at the apex of their power in the ancient world, all right? Babylon takes up modern-day Iraq, pretty much what it covered, but they had all these little client kingdoms. Judah was one of them. Aram was one of them. Damascus was one of them. You know, Edom was one of them. All these kingdoms, these small kingdoms that they had conquered who paid them yearly tribute. It's a tax, basically. Um, You pay us and we let you live. That was kind of how that worked. Uh, We let you have some measure of self-governance. And, and, you know, God came in in 586 B.C. and used Babylon to judge the southern nation of Judah because they'd rebelled against him. They'd abandoned the covenant. And look at what, we see this in chapter 47, verse 6. Look at this. I want you to see this again. God says, I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. Why? Because he did the very thing they told him not to do. God said, don't worship idols. They worshiped idols. God said, don't be sexually impure. They were sexually impure. God said, don't take advantage of the poor. They took advantage of the poor. Like, like everything, it's, like, it's almost like they viewed the Ten Commandments as a to-do list. Knock them all out, you know. I was angry with my people. I desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand. He's telling Babylon, I gave them to you. <laughs> and you showed them no mercy. He said, you even made it hard on the old people. How messed up are you that you even made it hard on the old people? God used Babylon to judge Israel. Babylon, though, went too far. In fact, some historical evidence shows that toward the end of Israel's captivity, those 70 years in exile, it got worse. <laughs> that things got they, got, they made it harder on Israel toward the end. In just the first few verses here, we see God telling Babylon, you were a queen. I gave you power and you abused it, so I'm gonna turn you into a slave. And then in verse 8, we see that God's judgment comes down on their self-sufficient pride. It becomes focused on the idea of losing a spouse or children. Did you notice that? He said, one day, you're going to lose your spouse, you're going to lose your kids. Now, why would he say that? It's justice. It's exactly what they did to Israel. But they took it too far. It It went way beyond what God considered appropriate recompense for what Israel had done. God gave Babylon power and they abused it and so he sings a song of judgment over them. I'm convinced that most of the evils that exist in the modern world are because of corruption and the abuse of power. Rarely ever is it a bad economy. Rarely ever is it poor agriculture. 
it's almost always, if you want to know why is that country so messed up, corruption and the abuse of power. In his work with International Justice Mission, a Christian ministry that works to set people free who are victims of human trafficking, Gary Haugen says that he has noticed what he calls the 1570-15 rule. Haugen applies this rule to criminal justice systems around the world, police forces, court and legal systems, etc. All right, this is what he says. He says, this rule has no scientific precision. It's just his observation from working all over the world. He says, but, but it's the observation that within criminal justice systems in the, de- the developing world, it seems that about 15% of the people who work for them wake up every morning trying to figure out how they can use their power, their influence to get themselves ahead. And he said, another 15% wake up every morning trying to think about how to use their power, their influence to genuinely help other people. And the 70% in the middle wake up every day and wonder which side is going to win because they're just going to go along with that. And so here's a guy who works to free people from human trafficking all over planet Earth. His ministries, the International Justice Mission is incredible in what they're doing. It's just, it's awesome. And he says over and over and over again, we, we see this all over the world, that you've got this small group of people who, who's dedicated to the corruption and abuse of power and that most of them, if they can be louder and win the day, most people just go along with it because they don't want to rock the boat. And over and over and over again through the Bible, God clearly states that he is against the abuse of power. What brought the Babylonians down on Israel was the same thing that brought the Persians down on Babylon. God gave them power and they abused it. Amen? Let me talk to you for a second. Remember that line in the Bible where it says, I, the Lord, do not change? God is still decidedly against the abuse of power. So bullying your wife, domineering and exasperating your kids, throwing your weight around at work, being the loud, obnoxious guy on the sidelines does not make you a man. But it might make you the focal point of God's judgment. Do not abuse power. That was one thing Babylon did. Here's the second. They usurped God's authority. They usurped God's authority. In verse 7, God calls Babylon to account because they never even considered the option that they might be wrong. Ultimately, the place of humility in your life is to acknowledge, this is what I think. This is maybe what I'm convinced of. I might be wrong. It never even crossed their mind. Okay? They never even thought that the rule might end and God is just kind of getting started with his critique of them for putting themselves in his place. See, Babylonia was famous in the ancient world for its magic and divination. You know what divination is? There are a lot of different ways to do it. Some people would throw dice. Some people would throw bones in a, in a little thing and read the signs. A lot of times they'd cut an animal open, dump out its guts, and whatever the guts said was what they would do, Right? Babylonia was famous for this in the ancient world. Literally, thousands of these omen texts have been found in archaeological digs. Here's what an omen text is. A common person would hire an omen priest before they had to make a decision. They would go to the priest, they would pay them 
to read the signs. And they'd cut open an animal. They'd throw the bones in the circle, whatever they would do. And the priest would tell them, okay, if you see this sign, then do this. If you see that sign, then do that. And they found these, these texts, these writings. It's like a contract. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them as they've done archaeological digs in ancient Babylonia. Not only that, but the Babylonians pretty much invented what we now call astrology. The 12 signs of the zodiac, right? The horoscope in the newspaper, they invented that. They came up with it. And they would use the positions of the stars to try to import meaning into their life. And I just want to say this because I love you. This might be hard to hear for a few of you. I hope, I hope this doesn't apply to anybody, but I just feel like I need to say that. If you look at the horoscope in the paper for guidance, that is idol worship. You are worshiping the gods of the Babylonians. I've read the book. They lost They usurped God's authority. They thought that the positions of the stars in the sky had, could tell them how to live. They thought that the guts of an animal could tell them how to live. They genuinely believed that they had ascended to the highest place and become masters of their own destiny. In the passage, I want, I want, you to, I want to draw your attention to this. In the passage, they, they say um, in verse 11, he says, a calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom, a catastrophe you cannot foresee. They would use these signs and go, we, we know it. We got it all figured out. We know exactly what's going to happen. And God is like, you have no idea what's about to come upon you. They thought they could sit in the place of God. And in the words of John Oswald, they made the fatal error of thinking they were self-existent and self-perpetuating. Two times. Did you catch it? I tried to highlight it in my reading of the text. Two times they say, I am. Did you catch that? Verse 8 and verse 10. I am, and there is none besides me. Do you get the impact of that? I'll tell you how it hit me. I had read this passage several times, all right? I read down through it, and for whatever reason, maybe I'm a bad Bible student, I don't know, it just never really stood out to me. I, I didn't catch it. But one day this past week, I was listening to it. I'm, I'm more of a reader than a listener. Like, I don't do podcasts because my commute is 1.7 miles. I live in Chapel Hill. So it's like, <laughs> like, hey, welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be talking about, oh, I guess I'm here. Okay, um, it just doesn't work for me. But, but this time I was listening to the text. I was just walking around my neighborhood and I was listening to it and, and it didn't jump off the page to me, but I can literally take you to the spot in my neighborhood where I, I stopped, literally in the middle of the street. It was a quiet neighborhood. I didn't get run over, don't worry. But I stopped like, I am. What? And then again, two verses later, I am. You can't say that? The only one who has the right to say that is the I am. The self-existent one, the uncaused first cause of the universe. Now you need to remember this text was written down, but it was written in order to be read in the synagogue. Can you imagine a faithful Jew hearing those words in the mouths of a Babylonian? That would have knocked that little yarmulke right off their head. 
right? Like they hear a Babylonian say, I am. And a Jew is like, oh, it's on now. You Babylonians, you're going to die, man. Um, what this is telling us is that the Babylonians had attempted to usurp the authority that only God is worthy to possess and rightly came under his wrath for that. And we live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about God's wrath, God's judgment. But to not talk about that is to misunderstand the very God we worship. N.T. Wright, in his book, The Cross and the Caricatures, wrote this. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures, i.e. us. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit and bomb and bully and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Men, women, allow me in love to warn you against doing the same thing. How do you respond when God tells you no? What happens in your heart when God draws a line and says, do not cross this? Well, he's not talking to me. That's for those people. Does God have the right to restrain you in some way? Or is his lordship over you only in effect when it's convenient? See, when you kick Jesus off the throne of your heart and attempt to sit there again yourself, you invite the judgment of God into your life. Even, even if you have faithfully served God in the past, as Israel had done, as Babylon even did for a short time. That does not mean that you're exempt from judgment. Now, if you're in a covenant relationship with Jesus, final judgment looks different. But that does not mean that he won't bring judgment into your life now. God's righteousness, God's love imply a necessity to his wrath and his judgment. That's a nice warm fuzzy on Father's Day, isn't it? Yeah. I know, it's hard. But, but, here's what changes that. The key to understanding this passage is the one verse that's kind of out of place. Sticks out. Now you need to know that halfway through chapter 45, God begins speaking. It's the prophet Isaiah recording his words, but, but the voice there is God's voice. God is the one speaking. It starts halfway through verse 45. And, and all of a sudden, in chapter 47, verse 4, the prophet interrupts. It goes right back to God again in verse 5. But look at this. I want to put this back on the screen. Look at verse 4 again. Our Redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. 
God has been talking for like a chapter and a half by this point, and all of a sudden, the prophet breaks in with an interruption. There's this brief moment of doxology here where he praises God. And I really want to draw your attention to the language. First of all, the word redeemer is significant. It's the Hebrew word goel. It's the word that's used to Boaz in the story of Ruth the kinsman redeemer, the one who sees a family member in trouble and swoops in to save them, to pay the price, to get them out of trouble and and put them into a right relationship. That's what redeemer means there. And he says, that's who our God is. He is the redeemer, the Lord Almighty, literally in Hebrew, Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts. Now that's important because Babylon worshiped the starry host, same word. And they would bow down to the stars and they would worship them. And Isaiah is telling his people, our God is infinitely higher than the highest thing that the Babylonian worships. And it's that God, the Holy One of Israel, who will give his life on a cross to redeem you. That's where this judgment goes. You need to understand that 2,000 years ago on a hill outside Jerusalem, God poured out all of his judgment for all sin on the person of his son, Jesus, and he redeemed you. He bought you back. He saw you in trouble and he rescued you. And that is what gives him the right to judge. God used Babylon to judge Israel, and then when, his, when Babylon went too far, he used the Persians to judge Babylon. And in the same way, God can sing a song of judgment over our life too. And so we need to reject the pride and the complacency that dominated the Babylonian experience and choose to submit our lives to Jesus. Babylon abused the power that God gave them and they tried to kick him out of the throne and sit in his place. By the way, the two sins that Satan committed that got him kicked out of heaven. And those are the same sins we commit that can destine us for hell outside of a relationship with Jesus. See, do you know how Jesus accomplished our redemption? He did the opposite of what Babylon did, didn't he? He laid aside his power and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He submitted himself to God's authority. Father, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. (laughs) Daddy, I don't want to do this, but I will do what you want. and he died on the cross in your place for your sin. God had a right to judge Babylon because the life of Jesus proves that when God judges, he does so with perfect righteousness. He plays by his own rules. And that means God has a right to judge us too. Listen, if you want to avoid being the object of God's judgment, you have to have a nature like his and only he can give that to you in Jesus Christ. And if you've never made a decision to do that, can I urge you to come home to your father on Father's Day? Can I urge you to appropriate the the salvation of the son and, and come home to your father on Father's Day? 
You have an opportunity this morning, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to avoid the judgment that is to come. That's how the sermon on the day of Pentecost ended, right? That's how Peter ended his sermon, flee from the coming wrath. It's not wrong to talk about this. It's the other side of God's love. He loves you. He died for you. If you've never made a decision to follow him, please do not wait any longer. We're going to sing a song together, and you're going to have an opportunity to respond. Be happy to receive you down here. Maybe you have a prayer need or something completely unrelated to what we talked about today, but God's been doing something in your heart, and you need to talk to somebody. I don't don't know, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and, and we're going to respond as God leads us today as we sing this song together.